It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Tomorrow is Jobs Day, an important Jobs Day, of course, as we continue to see uh, this U.S. economy try to reopen here uh, in the face of the Delta variant and, of course, the uh, job situation in this country, the labor market, uh, given that the uh, economy is 70% consumer spending, so it's important to get folks back to work and earning a good wage. Let's get a preview uh, of what we might find tomorrow. David Riley, Chief Investment Strategist at Blue Bay Asset Management. David, what, what do you expect to see tomorrow from this jobs report, and, and kind of what are the key issues you're going to be focusing on? Yeah, hi, Paul. Um, you're absolutely right that it is a key um, report, also because it's the arguably the most important data point that we're going to have before um, the next FOMC meeting on the 21st, 22nd of um, September. And I think if we get you know a, a reasonable you know number sort of upward surprise, you know 800,000 plus payroll gain, I think that actually puts the September Fed meeting in play in terms of uh, a potential announcement for. Um, QE tapering. If, if if it comes in much lower, you know, six hundred thousand or so, um, I think there will clearly be um, some disappointment. I think the Fed will sort of um, want to see some uh, kind of more evidence and sort of sit on their hands for a little bit longer until um, November. So I think it's actually one of those um, reports where, from a market point of view, it's quite kind of asymmetric. I think the market's kind of inclined to think that it might be a little bit disappointing. The August number often comes in a little bit lower than um, expectations in, in previous years. But if it actually comes in, you know, 800,000 plus, then, then then I think we'll see a bit of volatility in the rates market and markets more, more generally. But as I say, I think it puts September Fed meeting right into play. David, I can understand um, why they would be looking at those two um, boundaries on the other hand, and you have a ton of experience as an economist in you know previous roles at uh, UBS, and that I think that that was your degree in economics as well. You must know that this number isn't really exact, right? I mean, the margin of error I've heard some people say could be three to two to three hundred thousand. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right, and um, we know that it is subject to significant. Um, uh, revisions, which, which is why it makes sense to try and track a sort of, um, you know, three-month uh, moving average. What we have been seeing over recent months is that, you know, the trend has been one of um, increasing job gains. And, you know, I think Jay Power, Jackson Hole kind of expressed his confidence in the recovery of the um, labour market. In some respects, the really, you know, 
I think what's going to be a really interesting uh, number is, is, is when obviously we get into September and, you know, whether schools are you know, fully reopening because that will have an impact in terms of um, labour supply, labour participation. The, the participation of a lot of um, you know, parents is still actually somewhat lower than it, than it was um, uh, pre-pandemic. And so, you know, the op- reopening of schools is, is kind of a, a key issue. And that actually ties us back into to tomorrow's number as well, because one of the sources of uncertainty is the counting of, um, uh, you know, teachers being um, hired for, for, for the new school school year. So, you know, that, that creates some, some, some noise, I think, to some extent within uh, within within the data. But, you know, I think, as I say, you know, we, we, we're kind of, the clock has been set, I think, now for uh, an announcement around um, taper. Powell said, you know, they're going to start tapering this year in, in, in all likelihood. Um, and so I think that's going to make each of these data points increasingly, um, you know, important from a market perspective. All right, David, assuming that's all true, we do get some more color about tapering perhaps later in the year. How are you allocating your capital as you, as you think about generating returns? Again, we've had a huge run-up here in the S&P so far this year. What do you do for these remaining months here as we, as we look into 2022? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's actually quite a tough um, sort of outlook, I think, for um, investors because you know the, the, the broad macroeconomic outlook you know, in our view, is still pretty positive. We're expecting, you know, still solid growth. Uh, It's a good backdrop for corporate earnings. Um, It's a good backdrop for, um, you know, credit markets uh, more more broadly. But against that, valuations are very, um, you know, are very stretched. I know something that you've been um, discussing, you know, obviously equities, uh, you know, all-time highs. Uh, Credit spreads are, you know, at or near sort of uh, their sort of all-in tights, uh, all-in yields are very low as well. So, you know, the way that we're allocating um, capital is to stay fully invested, but we have, um, if you like, take, dialed down some of the risk in um, our, our portfolios. Um, you know, we're just concentrating on those sectors that we particularly like. We still like um, financials. Um, we do think we're going to get some steepening at some point of the, the, the yield curve and also with the improving outlook and improvement in asset quality. So we like things like subfinancial um, uh, debt. But we, we've kind of scaled back on some of the sort of cyclical um, exposure, um, we, we, you know, we have just because, say, a lot of the valuations are such that you're just not really getting paid to take, I think, too much risk at this point in time. Stay invested, but don't kind of, go too far away from home. Don't take too much risk onto the portfolio. David, thanks very much. Great to get your insight in these markets as we hit you know, yet another record high, I think. It's important to <laughs> be cautious, right? I mean, after how after all, how many years can you um, see gains of this size? And I mean, there are some good points to be made still in the in the long camp, but I think you've got to you've got to watch the obvious signposts. David Riley, their partner and chief investment strategist at Blue Bay Asset Management, talking to us about the non-farm payrolls numbers tomorrow. As a reminder, if you're a Bloomberg terminal user, you can type WHISGO. There you'll see um, under number 28, the change in non-farm payrolls, the whisper number so far, 720,000. This is Bloomberg.
The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Rebecca Ray joins us, Executive Vice President of Human Capital at the Conference Board, and she's here to talk about their back-to-work survey. The Conference Board Return to Work survey shows that as Delta surges, anxiety about the return to the workplace has nearly doubled. What exactly does this mean? I mean, in terms of anxiety, like my 75-year-old mom is afraid to get COVID, or what kind of anxiety do you, do you, do you mean? Well, good morning, and thank you for for asking me to join you. They're very concerned about a few things in particular. And we had seen a decline in the number of people in our earlier very similar surveys indicate that they were concerned about um, personally contracting COVID or bringing it back home to to people in their home. And that had dropped a bit when we last did this in June, but it has popped back up. And I think that's attributable to a few things, largely the uh, the headlines around the rise of the uh, Delta variant. So, again, I guess, Rebecca, the issue is you know, we're coming up here on Labor Day, and that seemed to be a day a lot of businesses were saying, hey, we're going to start bringing people back to work once the summer's over and all that type of thing. Now we've seen companies kind of push that back to October, some to even uh, the new year. Is that a, re- a reflection of what they're hearing from their employees? I think in part. I think also they're watching the same headlines. They're concerned about the ability to keep their workers safe, which I think, to their credit, almost every business has had that as the number one priority. But they're also watching to see what kind of local government or state government mandates there may be around mask usage or spacing. And so, you know, this is a very fluid, uh, changing situation. And so, you know, it puts businesses in a tough spot. They have to make a call. And, you know, new information comes along and they may need to revisit that. So I think there's an awful lot of reexamining all the time as to whether or not the plans that they have in place are indeed correct for the latest situation. There are some people who just don't want to ever go back, though, right? I mean, I'm not saying they would answer um, questions on a survey uh, um, uh, untruthfully, but... There are people that clearly are happier working from home and maybe even more productive. So does this does does the way we work look changed forever? I think it's certainly changed for the foreseeable future. I think the great experiment about working remotely and certainly I want to acknowledge that many companies and many workers don't have that opportunity. You know, they they had to soldier on and they had to adapt their you know, manufacturing plants or, you know, continue to have frontline workers. But for those who were able to work remotely, we've proven, I think we knew beforehand, whether it was research from the conference board or that of others, that remote work was as productive in most cases as work in a physical work site. Work site. So we have truly proven that now. And I think the longer that this has, has gone on, the more people have become accustomed to balancing their work and personal lives. And there are some benefits, certainly. There are some risks, and we identified some of those in the survey. 
But for an awful lot of people, the ability to have a better grip on integrating their work and personal lives, I hate to use the word balance, but, but let's say integration, people have realized that they can do it. And many people, particularly those who have maybe a good 20, 25 years of work ahead of them, are saying, I do not want to go back to the way things were with doing a, a commute five days into the office. The lost productivity of the commute time is, uh, is weighing, I think, on a lot of those uh, decisions. Rebecca, we've seen some reporting that says employers are saying, okay, you can work remotely, uh, but if you're relocating from the Bay Area of San Francisco, for example, to Boise, Idaho, we're going to make an adjustment in your compensation. Um, Is that going to be an issue as well? Well, I think these are early days, and I do know that a lot of the CHROs with whom I uh, interact have talked about the fact that this is not, I mean, this is uncharted territory in a way, right? I do know this, that workers want flexibility. And the people who are uh, offering a rigid work arrangement, they are going to run the risk of losing their top talent to their competitors. Now, I think the same thing is going to happen when you start to look at compensation. We've already seen in the financial services area some uh, some entities who have publicly said they're going to offer flexibility and they're looking to, to pick off top talent. So when you start to play with compensation, I think the same thing is going to happen. There are going to be other entities who want that top talent and they're going to match uh, or, or make a very attractive compensation offer to top talent. So I, I'm not sure it's a winning strategy, but it is early days. Yeah, no, we just got um, a story a couple days ago. Deutsche Bank says anyone who wants to walk through the doors of its headquarters needs to be vaccinated. UBS comes right out two days later and says, hey, if you don't want to be vaccinated, uh, you can apply to work from home. That could work. Mm -hmm. So it does look like employers are starting to see uh, opportunities here. Are we we seeing it all results of productivity? is Is it really as productive if you work from home? Is it less? Is it more? You know, I I think there are certainly going to be variations, but in the main, I I do think productivity has remained as high. Now, I say that with a caveat. There are are some downsides to a continued remote working, particularly when offices are closed, perhaps, and people don't have the opportunity to interact with colleagues in quite the same way. So I I do think that we're going to be watching this very closely, but I do think that uh, the concerns around isolation and mental health Yep. The concerns around career advancement, and you know, we, we're seeing in the headlines today even, yep. some organizations are saying, if you're not vaccinated, please don't come to our, you know, our leadership yep. development center because this is just not something that you can take right. advantage of. So, All right, Rebecca, we we'll have to leave know. it there just because of time, but thank you so much for joining us. Rebecca Ray, Executive Vice President of Human Capital for the Conference Board. Well, with the Delta variant raging in various parts of the country, folks are thinking about maybe staycation might be the call here for this Labor Day weekend, maybe not doing so much traveling. Uh, Let's check in with Brian Fields. He's a chief commercial officer for Groupon based in Chicago, Illinois. Brian, thanks so much for for joining us here. Again, as we head into this uh, Labor Day weekend, what are you seeing in terms of the experiences that that some of your uh, users are, are, are looking for? Hey, Paul and Matt, uh, thank you for having me on the show. Very excited to be here. Uh, we are very excited about the upcoming Labor Day weekend, and we, we do believe we can help consumers find something amazing to do in their local communities or wherever they may be. Uh, really, coming back, coming out of the pandemic, uh, we all want to get back to experiences that bring us joy 
uh, and allow us to connect meaningfully with others. As a result, what we're seeing is consumers gravitating more towards, uh, towards more of what they did pre-pandemic, uh, despite what's happening with the Delta variant. So top-trending local experiences at the moment in North America we're seeing are uh, return to trampoline parks and bouncy houses, uh, bowling, Whoa. amusement <laughs> parks, <laughs> museums, and zoos and animal parks. So uh, we obviously have a, a ton of options available for all this uh, on the Groupon mobile app. Can um, I get into a trampoline park? Do you have to be a kid or can I? No. Six foot no, five you, inch you, adult. You, <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know if there's any uh, upper limits on size, but uh, you, you absolutely do not have to be a kid. I, uh, I, I speak from personal experience. They're a lot of fun. That sounds awesome. I've never. <laughs> I was thinking you're going to tell us like racetracks or skydiving, but it's actually I, I haven't been bowling in so long. I would love to go bowling right now. What what uh, what about the kind of higher end experiences? What are what are people looking at on the luxury front? Yeah, so um, you know, so we, we we think outdoor activities are at the forefront this Labor Day weekend, but we're seeing some other big trends uh, that that kind of hit your point on some some uh, higher end services. Uh, couple couples massages really popular, um, and we're we're seeing you know people are are kind of making themselves look look better and more conscious about uh, being on Zoom all the time uh, as we use technology to communicate with others more. So uh, looking at services such as Botox and Lipo to be Zoom-ready uh, has, has been very popular as well. Hey, Brian, you know— You're just going to let that one lie? I'm going to let that one lie. <laughs> Dude, I wonder if they could Lipo one of my chins. You know, just get rid of one. Uh, you. Yeah, you, 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 you can you can find just about any any service uh, that that you want out there for. Uh, for I need a group on. I need somebody else. Yep. If Paul weren't in such good shape, he could join me. Yeah, well, <laughs> you know, I'll talk to Al from Jersey on that, Matt. And see 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 what we can do. All right, so Groupon, Brian. I know you guys deal with a lot of small businesses, and they got really hit hard with the pandemic and and the economic disruption here. What are you seeing with some of your small businesses around the country? So, you know, the bottom line is, is resilience. Um, it, it is amazing uh, how resilient uh, these small businesses have been. They've been creative. They've, they've uh, you know, in the restaurant space, they pivoted to takeout and delivery over the last year. Um, you know, in the healthcare space, uh, moved to virtual. We've just seen just incredible resilience uh, within our merchants that we work with. And you've got to, it's not just in the U.S., right? Because I see uh, Groupon.de. So uh, you can access these. I'm in, in Berlin, by the way, um, Brian. Yeah. So you can access these in uh, all different countries. Um, what kind of growth do you expect? Or what kind of growth are you seeing now it, it, that we've reopened, I guess? And what kind of growth do you expect throughout the year? Yeah, we, um, look, we, we're, um, uh, we're seeing growth in a lot of our traditional categories. Um, what we, uh, what we, you know, we we certainly have uh, a bit of a bump here with Delta, um, which uh, which you know we're all working through. But um, you know, the we'll be watching the macro environment very closely. But again, due to the resilience of our merchants, we think that these challenges will just ebb and flow for the second half of the year. They are transient. And we are continuing to focus on what we can control, which is just helping our merchants recover from 
these devastating impacts of COVID and giving our customers back some sense of normalcy. How about different parts of the country, Brian? Are you seeing regionality to, to your business? Some, some parts of the country seem to be in a more open mode than, than, than others. Yeah, yeah that's right. Um, so, you know, we, we, we've seen this over the last year, again, as, as, uh, as the pandemic kind of, uh, you know, has wor- works its way through different regions. But uh, a lot of it is, uh, is, is weather dependent, right? So uh, at certain points of the year, uh, depending on, on uh, you know, where you live, there's, you know, the, the, the outdoor activities uh, kind of spike up and down, um, you know, so uh, East Coast, uh, colder weather climate um, right now, it's, you know, prime outdoor activity time. Um, as the winter comes around, um, we do have seasonality in, in what people do. And uh, depending on, on people's comfort levels, um, you know, we'll have something there for them uh, to, to take care of, regardless of the weather. Uh, again, going back into the trampoline parks, if that's uh, what they feel safe doing. I'm going to look for one. I'm not sure how safe it is. Um in my shape, but uh, <laughs> maybe maybe I'll stretch. This month I'll stretch. I'll do a little bit more training, and then in October I'm going to hit the the trampoline park. Brian, thanks so much for joining us. Brian Fields is the chief commercial officer at Groupon, coming to us out of Chicago with uh, some ideas in terms of what to do this Labor Day weekend, and also a little bit of color in terms of the bump that we're hitting in this reopening. Um, because of the Delta variant of the coronavirus. This is Bloomberg. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. I want to bring in... Aleem Ramchula right now. He's a partner and co-head of private equity investing at Developing World Markets. And he's going to talk to us about um, what they can do for Afghan refugees. Aleem, you have firsthand experience with forced displacement as um, what your family was driven out of East Africa and uh, put into the U.S. and Canada, resettled in the U.S. and Canada. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. Yeah, my own family faced um, forced expulsion uh, from, from East Africa in the mid-1970s amidst um, the xenophobic rhetoric and the discriminatory policies uh, associated with uh, South Asians at the, uh, at the time and, and similar to today's FDPs, left without uh, asset and any, uh, any means of income and, and were, were forced to you know, kind of resettle and, and start over here. So I just want to point out, so you went on, though, to get, you went to Princeton and then got your MBA at Harvard. Uh, you worked on Wall Street at J.P. Morgan. And now, what what is developing world markets? Explain to us um, what what you're doing at this company. Sure. I mean, we're, we're an impact investment firm. Um, and essentially what that means is that we uh, invest into companies with, uh, the intention to generate, you know, measurable, beneficial, and social and environmental returns, 
uh, alongside a strong financial return. Um, you know, impact investors operate kind of across uh, the spectrum between capital preservation and, and commercial return. Uh, and our particular brand of impact investing is that we we are uh, able to generate commercial returns, uh, commercial risk-adjusted returns, um, while still um, you know generating this measurable kind of you know beneficial impact on on the community and, and our clients. So, Liam, we're seeing uh, lots of reporting and lots of video of the refugees from Afghanistan. Just give us a sense, based upon your experience, what can they expect as they are resettled in different parts of the world? Sure. You know, I think there's there's certainly um, much of the discussion here in the West has been focused on, you know, the 120,000 Afghans that have been uh, evacuated, you know, in in August alone. But I think what many uh, fail to realize is that is that there were already nearly, you know, three million uh, people that were internally displaced within the country uh, and a comparable number that were that were outside of the country. Right. And because of decades of conflict and insecurity, frankly, poverty and, and recent impacts of, of climate events, you know, across all of the provinces, provinces in Afghanistan, you know, we've, we've seen a majority kind of flew, flee from, you know, rural areas into, into Kabul uh, and, you know, you know, kind of, again, a comparable number in Pakistan, Iran and, and Germany. So, um, you know, they are they are likely to see, um, you know, significant influxes uh, across the across the globe and, and we'll need to be ready both, you know, with, with humanitarian response mechanisms uh, as well as ongoing kind of economic, um, you know, kind of uh, economic opportunity and, and livelihood pathways. What can investors do, Aleem, who don't want to just donate to to charity outright, but do want to um, understand and maybe uh, execute on some impact investing? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, I think um, from our perspective, you know, governments and, and civil society alone can't be asked to, to address this in, this issue in its entirety. You know, the private sector needs to be a part of uh, of the solution. And I think that the two main elements of this are going to be uh, patient and affordable capital, right? Impact investments, the, the, our space has innovated uh, significantly over the last decade around blended finance models that uh, both align investors' expectations um, uh, with the return uh, and, and the perceived risks associated with, uh, you know, certain investments. Uh, and I think importantly, uh, impact investment actually uh, brings an alignment among uh, stakeholders. We already have a portfolio uh, of uh, investments that has already been serving displaced communities. We have an investment in Georgia that was started by internally displaced uh, populations. And, and frankly, uh, the portfolio quality and, and the loans that have been made through some of those financial institutions are performing uh, on par, if not better, than, than some of the general, you know, you know, kind of general population and commercial loans that have been made across the board. Yeah, that seems, you know, your investing seems like a particularly challenge, Aleem, because in, just in terms of doing due diligence on maybe who you're lending to, who you're investing in, just give us a sense of how your team goes about due diligence in, in this part of the world, in this part of investing. Yeah, sure. It's a, I mean, it's a great question. You know, at, 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 uh, at our firm, we've, um, we've uh, been active in across, um, you know, 50 countries and, and 200 financial institutions. So we're very much uh, financial sector um, um, uh, experts here in, in terms of kind of you know bringing uh, the right parties to the bringing the right parties to the table. Um, you know we we'll certainly look at kind of the profitability and, and the underlying growth characteristics of a financial institution, uh, but we'll also want to make sure that again there is there is you know stakeholder alignment in terms of the types of teams, uh, and, you know management teams and, and boards that we're actually 
uh, dealing with. And so, you know, we have local country presence. Uh, we have kind of on the ground presence uh, and so are able to actually benchmark all of our investments across uh, the, 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 the top performing institutions in, in, in those countries. Uh, and then on top of that, we layer um, another screen around uh, the social impact and the environmental impact of those institutions. And we want to make sure that we optimize both uh, on on the profitability and, and return characteristics, as well as the impact that each of these right. uh, institutions are making on uh, on their clients. Eileen, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate your time. Fascinating uh, to topic here, and best of luck to you and your team. Aleem Remtula, partner and co-head of private equity investing uh, for developing world markets. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.